An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, it's our pleasure to host Reginald Reggie Brown, the principal at Global Trading Systems, as our guest. Reggie is a well-known financial market innovator. In fact, he's earned the subrequent, the godfather of ETFs from Forbes and Mr. ETF from Bloomberg for his early and influential champion of exchange-traded funds. He has provided market-making and liquidity services for the industry from the earliest days, and one estimate said that he'd helped bring about about a quarter of the then-extent ETFs into existence. Certainly, investing markets would not be what they are were it not for his efforts. And today, he also serves on a variety of both industry and not-for-profit boards, paying it forward. Welcome, Reggie. Thank you. So let me ask you a question. What's your origin story? Because we often find that interesting people have had interesting lives. How do you become the person you are both professionally and personally? Well, I think a lot of it is I grew up on a military base on the first half of my upbringing. So call it, you know, the first 12, 12 or 13 years in the military ecosystem. And for many respects, it's like a utopian environment where you're shielded from just some of the true realities of life. And then growing up playing in fields and sports and having the support of two parents and a larger framework around my family. I think that was a big input for me. But living in New Jersey, at McGuire Air Force Base, and in Oklahoma and in Texas, and seeing tornadoes and frogs and birds, and growing up in that environment. So how did you transition from that to finance? I read an interview with you that said you knew you wanted to work in finance by age 11. Well, I, I, that's not entirely true. So it's funny. My grandmother, my, my grandparents on my father's side, middle-class Black Americans, and, and I say that in context. My great-grandparents, uh, their parents, were real estate people, were, were able to buy real estate in the 1930s and accumulate just a small number of properties, but significant given, you know, everything about the times that they were living in with segregation and all kinds of issues around that. And, you know, our family was always spouse to be hard workers. My grandmother was an Avon district manager, so that gave her a middle-class life. My grandfather was one of the first wave of black firemen in the city of Philadelphia. And they turned to be investors. And my grandmother was preaching the power of investing in stocks when I was 10, 11. And she gave me a subscription to Money Magazine at 11, and that turned into uh, being intrigued. And I started trying to buy stocks at 12. My mother found out, shut me down through Boy Scouts, became an Eagle Scout. I said, I want to be a stockbroker. I think that was at 15. 
And then I got a summer job at the Philippine Stock Exchange, 15 and a half, and didn't look back. So I got to ask, what was the stock you tried to buy at age 12? I'm almost certain that I was drawn to penny stocks. I think it was advertisements of a firm then called Blinder Robinson, who used to do OT security. Well, now I know what they are. OTC securities trading sub pennies. And I answered an ad and I was trying, I had a rep call me and I was trying to buy them and because, you know, that's. That was within my reach financially. And when my parents found out that got shut down, but the interest, you know, kept growing around it. And what's amazing is my grandmother used to watch on PBS, Louis Rukeyser, Wall Street Week. I tell this story now to young people, they look at me like I'm funny, like what are you talking about? And like, all of a sudden I am dating myself, but I remember my grandmother talking about buying Apple at eight bucks and I said, ah, no one wants to buy Apple. Everyone's buying PCs. She was right. I was wrong. There is wisdom in the elders. God listen to them. God bless them. So interesting that it was your grandparents' influence. And you mentioned that they had been hard workers and invested in real estate at a time of segregation. And, and clearly there were not when you were growing up. You were lucky because you had your family as a role model. There weren't a hell of a lot of role models of black finance successes. I mean, in fact, I think later when you were on the uh, Florida, New York Stock Exchange, you were the only black market maker. So how should, we're not all going to be blessed to have your grandparents. How should finance try to improve the systemic income inequality issues and racial justice issues today in 2022? What can we do? Well, the Federal Bank of Boston did a study a couple of years ago, and they said that the black households in Boston, their net worth was $8. And they forecast some future period of time. I'm being a little bit opaque because I don't have the, the, the right timeline, but they've said that at some future point in time, the net worth would be zero. And this was a real study. And if you look at the spending power of the black community, you know, it's trillions of dollars. But yet the area or the access to financial services and being banked and having a banking relationship, the barriers, I think, stems from education. And so regardless of just the systemic pressures that are still in society, and there's all kinds of barriers that, you know, there's a lot of debate, like why does it still exist or even it still, or does it exist? But anyone who has a personal barrier is still a barrier. And so... I look at buying net worth of black households and compare them to other countries. Like if you look at Peru or you look at Jamaica or you look at some of these other five and six billion GDP countries and compare it to the black community, the spending power is enormous and the gross national product is higher than what you're seeing. So I, I think delivery of access of tools and delivery of access to education will start chipping away at the power of financial education and what investing can do long-term for generational wealth. So I see it from a different point of view. I've been in securities markets for 35 years and I see iterations of just how economies have evolved over time. I'm pretty impressed. Although there's a lot of social pressures right now in Chile where Pinochet came in and, and put in the pension fund system and had everywhere covered. Feels as though that, you know, we have that now, but it's not mandatory with the 401k system that, that's here and, and self-directed, but also the retirement systems. feels though that if you want to cover Americans, we have to get the entire American uh, population fully invested in the U.S. security system through some sort of 
system that will replace social security in my opinion. Does it have to replace social security or could it be like California where the uh, state pension plans have now opened themselves up to anyone who's a resident of California, whether or not they are in a covered employer situation. So it becomes uh, supplemental to social security, but also a potential defined benefit or defined contribution plan. I believe that still requires personal action. We need a system where folks are forced into it somehow or another and they're automatic covered. You know, I, I look at it from how do you protect society from the second half? You know, like middle-class folks and, and folks that have great education and great access will find a way to cover themselves and within their particular means and find a way, you know, the most vulnerable is where society cracks, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I have an interest here on this topic and I'm pretty passionate about how other countries have solved it or are thinking about it. And here in America, given our entrepreneurial culture, which I fully support, you know, commerce and our framework and just how we're built, but some people are just falling through the cracks and it's a drag on the overall productivity of the United States and us being prepared to compete globally, you know, so we got to fix the folks that are not competing well. Let's talk about ETFs for a second, which for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar, I guess you could simplistically say are mutual funds that trade like a stock. And they've obviously been hugely successful. They've outlasted their naysayers. They survived the 08 09 financial crisis, various flash crashes, the onset of the pandemic. There haven't been these liquidity crashes that people were worried about. And there are lots of reasons for their success. They generally have lower costs, tax advantages, the ability to gain exposure to either broad market like the S&P 500 or to styles, value or growth, or to themes like exposure to cybersecurity companies in a single trade. That said, there are, at the last time I looked, which I think was the end of the third quarter, some 2,643 ETFs in the U.S. And almost 450 of them have been launched within the previous 12 months. So let me ask you a question. As the godfather of ETFs, do you worry about your godchildren? Has it become too much of a good thing? Absolutely not. ETFs were born out of 87 crash. A lot of studies came out saying that there need to be a relief valve for short selling and program trading that was just introduced into the marketplace. ETFs were the solution to market-driven, system-wide or uh, market-wide you know, stresses. And we've seen this time and time again, the marketplace is resilient and it worked well. Worldwide investor class, the ability to be self-directed and to pull the trigger into asset classes that, that they have a view in and they want exposure. So the ETF industry, I believe has achieved great things. It's growing. Asset managers are coming in to launch active ETFs. We're seeing and ETFs have allowed for mom and pop retails to get exposure into asset classes that were historically hard to access or high feed and leave it. ETFs have provided that door in. So this has given the, the prospects of digital currency or uh, crypto ETFs and providing market structure around that. So you want to be in an environment where you're operating in tr with a transparent marketplace with a regulated broker and a regulated exchange operating in a regulated instrument. ETFs provided all of that. And because of competition, the mutual fund industry has cut their fees 
and has found the competitive force that has only benefited every investor class possible. So nothing but tailwinds here for the ETF industry, in my opinion, even on the face of direct indexing and even on the face of other types of of portfolios, retail investors will always want to have the ability to invest and get exposure based on our views. The ETFs allow that. And you have more ETFs than you have individual stocks. Granted, some ETFs, as you say, deal with other asset classes, whether it's crypto or fixed income. But there is a point, I mean, we now have more indices than we have stocks. Most of them not used, but still. Now, at what point do does this the superstructure of ETFs overwhelm the building blocks of the individual securities. Well, hold on. Well, while we solve the problem, let entrepreneurs unlock the value, let every market participant participate in, in the growth of good ideas and market cap, and let mm-hmm. this come um, to the marketplace and, and as a public security. I think that's the bigger issue here. You know, regulation has prevented or has, has not allowed mindset to evolve so that smart ideas come to the marketplace in, in a public market and allow investors to participate in the growth of those ideas. I'd rather see uh, refinement around regulations to allow more companies to go to the marketplace with removal of certain barriers that don't, don't allow them. And so we talk about the growth of the number of indices and ETFs are outstripping the number of public companies. Well, you know, every company has a series of stock box ETFs, large cap, small cap, mid cap. And you time that by 1500 different asset managers, then you're going to have that many ETFs in the marketplace so that a fund complex can have their own series. So is the marketplace dynamic? It can absorb liquidity. Absolutely. Does ETF bring a level of distortion because there are too many ETFs that are growing? Absolutely not. The market is in perfect competition. It's in equilibrium. Buyers can buy free and sell. And then where those prices are being derived at is a fair market. So when you start talking about restricting or talking about limiting the number of products in the marketplace, you reduce liquidity. That is an outcome you don't want. To be clear, I wasn't suggesting limiting the markets. I was asking if there is a natural limit to maintain equilibrium or to put it another way, are there ETFs that are coming out that are more marketing driven than purposeful investment vehicles. You know what? Winners win, losers die. So well put. It, it, in my opinion, let the winners win. And if the marketplace does not want a fund manager series and there's poor uh, investment thesis, then it'll go away. You know, that's the beauty of our markets. So I'm all for people bringing their ideas to the marketplace and then let the prices be dictated by competition. So I'm eager to open a door to any asset manager who wants to bring an ETF to the market. Hey, let's move from professional life to a little bit of fun. I'll call it public personal life. You, you serve on a variety of boards and some are industry affiliated or some are prestigious not-for-profits like the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and LaSalle University. But you also devote time and effort and resources to things that give back the Philadelphia community, like Stepping Stone Scholars, which combats racial and socioeconomic inequality by fitting your philosophy, providing educational and workforce opportunities to 2,500 underserved students a year in Philadelphia. So you clearly have a sense of priorities in your life. How do you want to view yourself at this point in your career? I think um, that's a good question. First of all, I have a supreme love of my hometown, Philadelphia. It's, uh, it's a bedrock of democracy, long history here. And I look at the city of Philadelphia, there's a 25% perpetual poverty rate. 
that in my lifetime has not cracked. And I look at the inputs in my life, in particularly where I was exposed at 11, 12, 13, around opportunities, around having a career in the securities market. And guess what? I'm in the securities market. And I believe that all young people should have the opportunity to be exposed to opportunities as early as possible and what the opportunities can be for their lives around their career interests. So Stepping Stone and LaSalle University in particular at LaSalle, I helped found it an idea called LEAP, LaSalle Early Access uh, Program, where it allows 11 to 12th graders to get college credits and graduate high school with 30 credits for free and walk into uh, college essentially as a sophomore. And then, you know, you, you cut the time to college, you raise up affordability because you're reducing their cost, and then you're going to expose them to career opportunities. It mirrors my life. And so if I can deliver on or be a participant, deliver large scale to expose young people, no matter who they are, the opportunities of what this current uh, ecosystem of our economy will provide for them, then inherently I'm affecting their families because I'm giving their families hope and, and, and a way to, to prosper in a way that they haven't really envisioned before. So with Stepping Stone Scholars, it's just that it is allowing young scholars access to colleges or to private schools and help them compete with a quality education. You know, so I support that. And LaSalle, as a trustee and in my eighth year with their LaSallean mission, they have a, like all Catholic schools, they dust people off, they, they learn them up and they graduate them with a job most likely. And being a, seeing LaSalle pivot in the way they have towards going downstream to address the market of 11 to 12th graders and give them college credits for zero, man, that's powerful. And I want to be a part of that. So using some of my influence, that's exactly what Stepping Stone and LaSalle is now doing as joint partners. And I sit on both boards and that was my way of paying what I received back to the city of Philadelphia. And it's just starting and relatively still a young man. So hopefully over a period of time that I can cover the 20,000 high school graduates that come out of the greater Philadelphia region and give them the optionality to choose. Say so this is an opportunity for them. Okay. Let me pivot to some of your other board work and, and other extracurricular activities. You're known as a collector of black American visual art. And I was doing some research in preparation for this interview and you actually have an IMBD listing as an associate producer for a 2013 Broadway version of A Trip to Bountiful, which starred Cicely Tyson, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Vanessa Williams, quite a cast. So how'd you get into that? And second part of that is, well, that appears to be the only play you ever backed. You're now the interim president of McCarter Theater at Princeton, a fairly well-known performance space. So what's the role of art in your life? And is there a difference between visual and performing arts? Wow. You're a good researcher. Yeah. I, I tend to suppress all this for my public profile. You know, I, I, I recognize that when I turned 40 or 42 or something like that, or maybe it was 45, what you do is not who you are. How you make your money is not entirely 
how you're composed. And my family collected art in the seventies and I, I, I received most of it as generations started to pass on. And, uh, and it was a good way to document me, um, and for my children, you know, a little bit of history of who we are. When the markets fell out in 2008, 9, 10, you know, I started accumulating some museum worthy objects and it became interesting and fun, but because I've been in securities markets since I was 15, other interests popped up and one of them was in a creative field. And it was so, it was something totally opposite than what I was currently doing. It just, I liked the people that were involved in it. So McCarter Theater in Princeton was my first uh, nonprofit board. And there I rose up to understand what it meant to be on a nonprofit board. And ultimately I was asked to be a vice president. And one of the, at the present, at the, at the time, the president came down with breast cancer and she ultimately became too ill to serve. And I was asked to be the interim board chair, which I did for, for a little more than one year. I'm no longer on that board. I'd serve and I learned a lot and I figured out that visual is where my interests really lie and not necessarily performance. Met a lot of great people. And I moved over to Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, where I am now currently um, the vice chair of the board and chair of the board of governors for their art college. And for me, I'm such a history buff, documenting the American story through visual work became just a natural. And then the ecosystem around the art community is it's rich, it's deep, it's colorful in the people that comprise it. And it's fascinating to me. And a lot of it's like trading, you know, you can apply your trading skills. So for me, it was just a departure to what I was brought up to do in financial in financial markets. And, um, I think it rounded me out. So vigils where I'm at a lot of the, the board work is really around just collecting history and presenting it in a way that is fair and balanced for the viewers to make their own opinions. And to be a part of that, I've grown so much. I see myself in this role as a nonprofit participant for years to come because it brings joy. Has the growth been around the artwork itself or the board service on the art? I think both. The board service has allowed me to have better governance and understand delivery of that. And that has like translated into be a better manager, um, and a bit better business person because there's skills learned in both arenas that, that are transfer. And then, you know, the artistic community, you know, some portions of it is not necessarily the most financially sound group of people. And, uh, yeah, let's put it on the play and what did it make? Zero. And it's funny when people say, if you want to make a fortune and, um, and back in theater, you start with a very big fortune and you really weigh down to a very small fortune, but it's a world that, you know, a lot of hands and uh, the, the bottom line is not necessarily paid attention to. So I think a lot of it being a business guy, weaving in and out of that community, it's more for fun, but I've learned a lot around management of people through that community because they approach the business problems differently and you have to approach them differently. And then all of a sudden you get to be rounded in different ways of looking at business problems. There's an acronym out there called STEAM. So everyone thinks of it as STEM, science, technology, education, math. When you throw an A in there for art, you tend to round out the technology part of that and people can apply um, a business problem in a different way because they're viewing it um, from a different standpoint. So there's 
business applications here that actually have measurable revenue attributes when you bring people different ways of looking at business problems into an ecosystem and all of a sudden you have a better debate about how to achieve an outcome. And ultimately shareholders benefit from a diversity of thought around the table. And so when you talk about diversity, I talk about diversity of thought. You don't want to have a room of people thinking the same way, laughing the same jokes. You want to have a clean debate. And so when you introduce the artistic view in there sometime, sometime it actually rains. Actually, it stands out and there's value there. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? I think, you know, the last two years in COVID has been fascinating to me. I've done a lot of personal investing using this time away from the office in particular. I think there's a lot of inputs around just why things work. And I was reading an article and it was, I'm going to misquote, but it was the president, uh, it was the CEO of Nike. And he was being interviewed in the Wall Street Journal. And he talked about, he had a speaker in for Bain. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically he was saying that business guys think they have all the answers. And you got to go out and you farm things out to make you better. And so right now, what's fascinating to me is just bringing in specialists to address different parts of business problems, even personal problems that I'm dealing with. And it's been fascinating seeing the outcome. Through COVID, I have no problem sharing the story. I think since March of 21, you know, I put a little investment in me and I dropped 18% of my body weight. And that's been interesting to see the evolution. And so what I'm looking at now is encouraging folks who work for me to pay special attention to themselves during COVID. And while we're in this period of reflection, because business is great, you know, business has thrived. Uh, being in the cloud and working from afar, we've learned a lot about just how to deliver to our customers and, and the administration of our business. But I want the folks that interact with me to also spend the time working on themselves. And I think that's where I have a lot of interest in right now. Let's finish with a couple of quick questions and answers. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? It's funny. You don't get to say Philadelphia. No, no. I, I've had a very similar question recently. You know, I haven't hopped on a plane internationally in almost two years. And I'm looking forward to getting back and seeing friends and, and clients that I haven't seen in a while. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty anxious to get back to Asia. You know, it's just, I haven't been in a long time because of restrictions and some changes um, on my side. And so for me, a business colleague invited me to a dinner. We were in Tokyo and he says, bring a tuxedo. And I brought a tuxedo and it was a nonprofit room to read where they built schools around the world and you spend like 40 grand and, and you put up um, a small school you fill with books. Well, we jointly bought one or invested in one in Cambodia and uh, my friend Jason went to see the inauguration of the school that we jointly invested in, but I couldn't go because I just had, um, some surgery. So I'm, in, I'm interested in going to Cambodia to see the school that I put a little capital to and see the community that, um, that was so gracious to receive Jason and his wife when they went to go visit and I like to see 
you know, just the productivity of that. So I'm pretty anxious to go in that part of the world. That might be the best answer to that question I've ever heard. <laughs> How do you relax? Six days a week, I am on a treadmill or a Peloton or and then in the middle of that swimming. So these days it's all about working out and then that tends to relax me and then listen to the music. I, my musical tastes are, are very broad and it's funny. I, oh, I've used this app to call Shazam mm -hmm. and I've been finding some great music by just, I'm out and I, I hear a soundtrack and pop up my phone. And you wouldn't think I would do this. Pop my phone and pick up the song. And I have found some great music over the last six months that, uh, it's just been amazing. And it's just, it's across genres and it's across just different ecosystems. It's funny. I got introduced to some folks from opera Philadelphia and the tenor of the company agreed to have breakfast with me. And I gave them a tour of the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art in Philadelphia and I got him into our old historic building where the majority of our art is held on display in the museum. And I asked him to sing impromptu and he did. And it was one of the most gracious things that he could have done. His voice rose to the top of the ceiling is a Frank Furnish building built in the 1800s. And it was just magnificent. I posted on my Instagram account. I, I use my Instagram account, which I won't tell you the handle. I use that to display places I go that are full of art and talk about my interest around visual art. And so wherever I go on the business trip, I tend to, and I travel to colleagues, they know that they're going to go to an art museum. And so I've been to pretty much an art museum in every country that I've been in. One of the most exciting ones was the Museum of Western Art in Tokyo. You know, there's no reason why the Japanese should own some of our treasures and they have them. On top of my list is the Louisiana Museum in Copenhagen. I hope to get there this year in 22, but walking through a gallery or a museum and getting deeply engaged on the display of, of the scholarship that's on the wall and why it's there. It's just intriguing and I learn a lot and that tends to not only grow some of my interests, but puts me at a, at a good mood. And then, and off to a good meal with a bottle of wine. I can't complain. Last question. If you could magically whisper one thing into the ear of everyone in America, what's the one fact or belief you wish everyone knew? I, I think right now I'm pretty sad where we are on, from a political standpoint, we're so polarized from my landscape. Or from my point of view, working for a number of years at the New York Stock Exchange and seeing great Americans like John McCain come into the New York and just be received. Jesse Jackson, keep hope alive. I mean, just you see great Americans and whatever that they were, whatever they're, how they're known for, and you see them up close and with on both sides of, of the political aisle, you know, we're all working for the same common cause. And, um, I've been in the Capitol, I've been in the speaker's office in the Capitol. I've been in great halls of great government delivery for work. And I, I, I hope that somehow or another that we can tone down the rancor that's currently exhibited because we're all Americans and we all want the same thing, safety for our families, opportunity, and we all want you know, a fair chance to compete 
and to be given a fair chance to, to thrive. And so what I'm hoping is the one thing I want to say is just love your neighbor, no matter who they are. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Reggie Brown, principal at GTS. And with a word of uh, commonality and encouragement, I guess I'd say, for America at the end there. Thanks so much, Reggie. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.